Welcome to the Project Cycling Podcast. Because how many of those, um, oh, I don't know what you want to call them, like those webinars, you've done a few of those now, haven't you? Yeah, um, through COVID I did them like every month. And then I had a couple of extras in there. So I've probably did a, done about maybe 20 of them and then recorded, I think, about 10 of them. Oh, yeah? Yeah, of different topics, um, all about an hour. And then, um, yeah, I do them for, for other things as well, but not for that sports business, yeah. Yep. yeah. I, I reckon, well, I obviously got on listening yeah. to that first one. I, yeah. I think they're good, you know, they're, um, you know, especially if you can't get to stuff, those webinars really open yeah. up that. Well, it was something like I did one face-to-face talk and I planned to do like a few in different areas just to kind of promote my business. And then, um, yeah, COVID, and I was sort of thinking, how could I record this? And then COVID happened. I was like, oh, well, just have to figure this out. (laughs) Just forced me to do it quicker. One thing that COVID has done is accelerate people's use of online platforms Mm. to... Mm -hmm to either do their usual business or to you know, expand in other areas like you um, that we weren't previously doing. And even people's acceptance of that on, yeah. re- on return, like yep. people's um, keenness to watch a webinar or even see me in, you know, over Zoom rather than in person. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you had one experience of that and then instead of going to – um, like travel across Brisbane and get stuck in traffic, find a park, pay ten dollars for parking. They're like, yeah, oh, no, I'll just do this on my lunch break. That's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, even doctors and stuff now, like mm. you know, they yeah. with their online and and a lot of that was facilitated to by the government saying, okay, we'll reimburse you for yes. it. Like as in, they had to approve a lot of that stuff because I know I had a specialist appointment. They said, yep. And then the follow up, they said we don't know if it'd be face to face or or we can do it on you know teleconference or whatever they call it. Yeah, depending on what the government does. So, and then yeah. I think next, oh, why, why shouldn't you do that stuff more? Especially if it's just a bullshit follow-up yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I don't, Demo, even, I just don't by think the it's way, permanent funding yet either. Like, I think <laughs> it's still got an end Two weeks date. to live. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two weeks to live. Thanks for the call. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting paid for this, but... Yeah. <laughs> don't worry, we'll just bog in Medicare. <laughs> uh. yeah. What do you reckon? Reckon we should kick off? I thought we had. Have we? Yeah, yeah, this is all going up. No, okay. <laughs> well, if that's the case, Nicole, you better introduce yourself. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Nicole. I'm from New Zealand. Um, I have worked over there in New Zealand. I've worked in the UK, Cyprus, and ended up here working in Australia. And basically been into sport since I started as well, cycling, Started in swimming, surf lifesaving, um, ended up into more adventure racing here. But, yeah, that's how I met you guys, I think, is through cycling. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yep. So you're a – what's your qualification? And, and tell uh, us a bit about your, your background in that. Um, so I'm an accredited practicing dietitian and a s- accredited sports dietitian. And um, I was trained in New Zealand. And then over here there's – in Australia there's this additional qualification called it, uh, which is – directly into the sports dietitian aspect and my job at the moment um, I'm working in private practice in um, both sports and diabetes Um, both all sorts of diabetes type 1 people with pregnancy or diabetes type 2 diabetes Um, and then on a couple of other days in my week I start people on insulin pumps for a for a company yeah 
well, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm interested when we when we get into this to hear about endurance athletes and diabetes and that because I know you've done a little bit, mm-hmm. you've got a bit of experience in there, mm-hmm. and maybe I'm probably underselling it. I understand you're pretty well pretty well <laughs> regarded in that area. So, um, yeah, you said you've always been into sport. Mm-hmm. Like, did when you wanted to be a dietitian, I suppose moving into the sports realm was that just a natural? Like, was it never going to be anywhere but moving into that direction? Yeah, that's how actually I got interested in the idea of dietetics. So I went to uni to be a physio and then um, changed my mind one of the first years because I think there was something called physics that I really didn't want to do. <laughs> so I chopped and changed a little bit in the first year. And then um, I did a couple of sports nutrition papers and, yeah, just loved them. And um, although I think I pr- would have loved being a physio as well, um, being a dietitian is um, in the sports world is, I guess... Um, seeing what the body can do um, with with good nutrition and I guess performance so that really interested me um, and then studying nutrition as an undergraduate uh, I sort of got the feeling that you kind of need to be a dietitian to be able to be you know be able to see people with medical conditions as well um, yeah and then I got the opportunity to do my master's in sports nutrition and from there that's where I started working with athletes um, that was the my master's was in uh, vitamin D, and I worked with uh, a really great supervisor who I'm still uh, is still a bit of a mentor to me now. Um, he worked with the Chiefs international rugby team, and then he also was doing a bit of work w- alongside the lady who was a dietitian for New Zealand rowing, and uh, and then another dietitian for New Zealand hockey. So we did a project in vitamin D in those sports. Um, and it gave me a really good, I guess, um, leap into the sports nutrition world and high performance sport. Yeah. Vitamin D. That's sunlight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pretty much. Right. <laughs> it's right. the vitamin, which isn't really a vitamin. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So what sort of impact does that have then, or what was your the outcome of that like, especially in the athletic sort of environment? Yeah. So vitamin D plays a really multifactorial role in health. So. Um, one of the big things with vitamin D, and particularly with athletes, is its role in bone health. Um, so I guess the key ingredients for bone health would be calcium, vitamin D, and also um, impact on the ground to build good bone strength. And um, particularly in places like New Zealand, it was a great project because many people in New Zealand have vitamin D deficiency, especially during the winter. And we found that a lot of the... Um, uh, darker skinned athletes because dark skin I guess protects from the sun and UV lights and that's where you get vitamin D from so even during the middle of summer um, some of the Chiefs players outside in the sun all day had vitamin D deficiency um, can also impact things like uh, the risk of I guess recovery like muscle tears and, and um, injury mood and mm, Immunity as well. So, using that, you're saying like with New Zealand, obviously climate dependent has a big impact over there. Mm -hmm. Do you see that in any of the southern states here, like Tasmania? I I wouldn't imagine it's probably like a a big deal for us up here or, you know, in the northern parts of Mm. the country. But yeah, down the south, how's that? Do you see the same sort of results there? Yeah, definitely. So, anywhere that doesn't see much sunlight um, at the lower latitudes um, and during the winter, the the UV lights isn't strong enough to make vitamin D. So even if you are outside in the winter, you're not 
making much from your, uh, within your skin. As you get higher, it really just depends like how much time you spend outdoors. So a lot of Queenslanders would be vitamin D deficient or they might dip into deficiency in some months towards the end of winter. Um, but as they start getting outside again or if, if people have some exposure during the day, like get outside for lunch and that sort of thing, it's probably going to be all right. So, yeah, but, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I know that was a huge issue when I was racing for um, TWD Lincoln back then. There's a um, fin- team based in Finland. And oh, yeah. So many of the riders. Like, it wasn't so bad for me because I just basically arrived when summer started and raced and then went home. But, yeah, I know a lot of them really struggled with that throughout winter. Yeah, yeah definitely, because they're such a high latitude up there. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. During, during the winter, most of them were saying, like, they get two hours of sunlight um, yeah. yeah, and they were like, if you had a uni class that was happening, be it that, they were like, you could go a month without seeing the sun, mm. like, yeah, real easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's certainly, um, and vitamin D is a really kind of safe vitamin to take, like it's not going to, unless you take crazy amounts of it, and you can't even access those sort of tablets, the strength of the tablets just over the counter, it's a good one just to kind of take during winter if you don't see sun much, or particularly if you're at like the southern states of Australia and New Zealand or over in Europe um, in, in winter. Or if you're a person that sort of spends time inside, like even swimmers and spend a lot of time in indoor pools or if we train at early and late hours of the day, which most um, people do, <laughs> um, is that you might miss some of the good sunlight there. There's a method to my madness riding at lunchtime. <laughs> Vitamin <Yeah>. D. <laughs> Obviously, without going into like, there'd be... I suppose, you know, we don't want to encourage people to, in Queensland to spend four hours in the middle of the day exactly, in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what sort of levels, um, you know, what sort of exposure do you need to get it, you know, naturally? Mm. Yeah, so it is the trade-off is the risk yeah. of skin cancer, which is another tricky one. Um, but really even like exposure of hands and like neck or, or legs um, that you might not sort of sun cream all the time. Um, if you're out in that for probably five, ten minutes in summer, that would be plenty. Like it really doesn't take much in summer. Um, in winter it might be that you just expose your arms when you're out for lunch, for example, for like 40 minutes or something. Right. Um, but, yeah, of course not risking yourself of, of sunburn. Um, yeah, there's a bit of a trade So you don't there. need the mankini, Damo. No. Um, no. Sorry. sorry, there's still no excuse for that. I had that. a vision of out there in his DTs with the, the sunbathing board <laughs> reflecting sun under himself. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put, don't put that image in people's heads. <laughs> <laughs> and, this, and this is why we don't video record these. <laughs> oh, that's pretty interesting stuff. I haven't really, um, you know, had a lot to do with that vitamin D, so that's pretty pretty inf- interesting. Mm-hmm. So from there, I suppose moving into, you know, um, in particular endurance athletes, mm-hmm. you. Do you, well, do you use yourself as a bit of a, a guinea pig for any of that? I know you're a, a bit an endurance athlete yourself and you're into adventure racing and sort of those longer events now. So Yeah, yeah certainly. And, and I go through probably fits and starts of it whenever th- something new comes out. But, um, yeah, it definitely helps to, to kind of walk the talk and to um, – to put it into practice myself so that I can, well, both good and bad, you know, feel what a bonk feels like <laughs> and then Fabulous. and then how to, you know, try and claw yourself back from that, which is, yeah, pretty, pretty tricky. tricky. Um, and then also, you know, using it as your secret weapon and, and maximizing nutrition and how good that feels. And, and I guess like I'm always trying a variety of foods and ways of eating it and ways of storing it, ways of carrying it. 
um, for a bunch of different, you know, sports that I like to do as well, which, which does help. Yeah. Mm. You guys going to help me out here or am I just going <laughs> to? <laughs> yeah. I had one, one um, question I thought would be interesting is, um, is there something you find, you see uh, to be like a common thing most athletes are, are missing or not doing right? Um, I know there's, there's always a bit mm. of case by case sort of thing, but it, yeah, it's, um, I think one thing, and it, it really depends on the sport. Like I think there is themes in different sports. Um, there's a couple of things probably at the moment. One I see is particularly anything that's like there's, I guess, a weight-related benefit um, is that often people underfuel. Um, to try and achieve, you know, what is often spoken about as um, like a great, you know, power to weight sort of ratio, but they forget about the power. And so they might be striving for lower weight or being really careful with what they eat and, and in the aim to, you know, reduce body weight or produce body fat mass um, particularly, but forgetting that um, nutrition, good nutrition and regular nutrition and the right timing um, can actually really improve power. Um, so it's about kind of when using it um, wisely when you need it, particularly like recovery and during nutrition. If you want to achieve, you know, the certain intensities or whatever it is that your coach has, has laid out for you, if it's anything less than a re recovery ride or a coffee ride, then um, it's really important to think about nutrition to make sure that you are getting those gains as well as that power. Um, and then another thing, I guess, which um, uh, I see... It's just kind of gone from my head, so I'll pick that up in a minute. Yeah, you brought, you've brought that up actually before, Ben, though, and, and Trent, we've had this conversation about the power-to-weight ratio and, you know, it power always comes first. And, yeah, and, 100%. Uh, yeah. And I must admit one thing that it's something I I find it's hard to uh, explain with enough emphasis, I would say, to, to people that I coach is especially when events start ticking over that two hour mark um, sort of thing. Like one thing that just blew me away, like I've, I've done a fair bit of work with a nutritionist over the, over the years for my racing and um, I did a bit of like metabolic testing and sort of stuff mm -hmm. um, back when I was racing in France and just what blew me away through that whole process was um, essentially what the, 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 my understanding was that there's, there's a point where you're burning enough especially carbohydrates where you can't fuel as fast as you're burning them. So you're mm -hmm. sort of like, and what astounded me was how low that can be. Mm -hmm. um, like for me at the time, it was, it was to the tune of about 270 watts, which um, yeah, like at the time, like I was quite often doing three, four hour races that was above that. Mm -hmm. um, and I just like, no wonder I was, blowing up three and a half hours into these races because yeah mm -hmm. it's just like when, when you're burning more energy than you then it's coming in and then if you're not putting enough in mm. like that's that's assuming you're putting a, the right amount of fuel in um which most of the races i wasn't putting enough in mm. um yeah you can you can burn that candle at both ends real fast if you're not careful yeah it's um it's actually and i guess like sports nutrition has evolved over time and that um, I remember back when I um, started, it was that, um, you know, you aim for sort of 60 grams of carbs 
in an hour because that's what your stomach can manage. Um, but then more and more they've tested um, tested that theory and now we kind of know that the more is better if you can tolerate it. So like um, my sister who's a physio back in New Zealand, she had some did some work with some of New Zealand's elite triathletes and they were pushing like 120 grams of carbs an hour and it was just capacity. So another theme in sports nutrition which is um, evolving as well is the idea of gut training. So you train your legs, you train you know, your mind, you, you train yourself as an athlete and so you also need to train your gut to tolerate the right food and as much of that fuel as possible to preserve your muscle glycogen stores which are you know, that's where you get the intensity out of because they are so precious, as you were saying. Yeah. Because yep. I guess that, that um, what you just said there does kind of fly in the face of that, uh, what you hear go around. I've heard it go around a bit more in the triathlon scene than I have in road, um, mm-hmm. but that sort of, uh, was it race high, train low, where, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of they people don't tend to not fuel properly out training and mm-hmm. then... Um, just go big when it comes race day sort of thing yeah yeah so that's um yeah so depletion training or race um high train low sort of um theory or or should i say um tool is is quite useful and um i guess different coaches and different um on people on different programs will will use it in different ways and i guess it is really useful because it's like um say you meant to go for a three-hour ride and you do it fully fueled um it could be quite similar sort of training benefits to if you started low, so say after an overnight um, fast, like you're sleeping, not eating, and then you get up in the morning without having any food. And if you've only got an hour or an hour and a half, then you might get better gains starting lower. Um, it's important to still recover on the other end is really important. Um, and I guess the, the benefit is that you can, if you're especially if you're time poor, um, you can fit more in in terms of stress training stress and then as long as you've got the recovery fuel and the recovery afterwards you can adapt just as much to say a shorter session um, the downsides and the reason why we wouldn't just use that all the time is that it is a greater stress so it's almost like overtraining if it's used too often um, and there's certain people that it might not be beneficial for so say people who already are struggling to meet their fueling needs, um, especially if they're trying to perhaps gain weight or they're at a particular stage in their program where they're really trying to um, increase power or doing lots of sprints and resistance. You're not going to meet that same intensity without nutrition. So those sessions, you definitely want to make sure you're fueling properly. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely a bit of a spectrum like between race day, 120 grams an hour, if that's what you manage to have, versus yeah, sort of training on nothing, there's, there's a bit of a spectrum in between too. Yeah, that, that's actually something that you're just saying is that um, uh, that starting a session sort of low, um, that I've, I initially started um, experimenting with because I, I don't really like to test things out on athletes that I coach that I haven't done myself. you say on yourself. Or just no, like, yeah, <laughs> we, we give it the demo yeah. first. Yeah. <laughs> what he says. I'm the overfueling athlete trial. <laughs> but um, yeah, I have toyed around with it both myself and then I, I found a lot of personal benefit to... Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm not talking about doing every session like that. Like you said, that there's, yeah, that, that would put be... put yourself in a big hole really quickly. Yeah, I, think, mm-hmm. I think that would be, yeah, pretty insane. But um, yeah, like I... 
and I, st I toyed around with it myself and found a lot of benefit. Um, yeah, and and then taking it to the, the broader um, athletes, uh, I, I think I'd agree with what you said. Like, there are some people who, if they're already pushing the upper limit of stress of what they can handle, um, or, or struggling to fuel in general and that that sort of thing, like there are some people who I'd I found it's better to to sort of just keep with with fueling properly and then mm -hmm. there are others who yeah can can handle um mm. that a bit better yeah definitely it's like it's just another session you got to hand right i guess as mm. a coach or and as an athlete is that you might do a sprint session and yeah i'm definitely not my forte in terms of programs and things but you might have a sprint session you might have a long three-hour ride or you might have this depletion session you know it's one of the really useful tools within a week yeah just mm. you were speaking before about training you know, gut resistance, essentially, and, you know, pushing that upper, you know, that upper limit to, you know, 120 grams mm. or whatever, whatever craziness you're working towards. <laughs> but if, let's say you're somebody who doesn't tend to have a lot of um, issue with, you know, having a high fueling rate as in digestive distress, mm. Mm -hmm. do you think, or is there any evidence to support that, um, let's say you just rolled into race day and you know that on race day you can go from doing your 60 grams an hour and your, your gut can handle 120 grams, no mm. dramas. Mm -hmm. What's the bioavailability though? Do you need to train that as well as opposed to just the distress on your, on, you know, the GI sort of? No, nah, not 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 that I know of. Um, as I'm aware, it's really because once your stomach has it, glucose is the easiest form of fuel for your body to break down and use. Um, so as long as you are, you know, using it, then um, yeah, it's available. Um, and the the I guess the rate limiting factor is gut upset. So. Um, and I guess it's important to, like, if you know that 120 is good even training, making sure that it's um, it's similar to a race day environment. So, of course, it could be hotter, more intense. You could be nervous, you know, making sure that you've kind of trialled that and probably a, a different race that's not as important because um, that's where you're going to get the same sort of environment. Yeah. Mm. And that is where those club races and local races mm -hmm. are great for is just trolling that kind of stuff. Don't the, don't the ever of cycling. Yeah, <laughs> There's like, plenty of races. Yeah, for, like I'm not sure about some of the other sports, but for cycling, you got like a heap of opportunities to try mm. different things. Don't don't ever rock up to your A race for the year with something new in your pocket. Your first so gel. You, <laughs> an extra 25 gels for your hour race. <laughs> yeah, well, you hear that so many times, especially races like Grafton Rule and stuff where. People got horror stories because they're like, "Oh, just try this gel," and they've just got one flavor gel for the like entire eight hours, and mm. they're like, "Yeah, I'm just throwing up halfway into the race." And like, yeah. yeah, try try everything before you take it to your A event. Yeah, that's um, especially those big, um, like really long races. <laughs> they are a whole different fueling game. Yeah. Like, yeah, like I don't, I don't, I can, I'm fine with you know gels and rice cakes for a three-hour race but when you start trying to just live off that for seven mm. eight hours that's a yeah that's a whole different ball game yeah, don't time your crit formula by eight and rock up <laughs> <laughs> yeah when you whenever you get over three hours <clears throat> i guess my theory is that you've missed a meal in that time at yeah. least one <laughs> you know maybe two so think about what you'd normally have in a meal like that does satisfy you in a way so if you're doing an eight-hour ride like you're probably not going quite as intense as that one-hour session for that whole time so it's kind of worthwhile fitting in some real food as well a lot mm. of people find that 
better than say living off gels for that time um, because it almost settles your stomach in a way and it keeps you uh, it gives you a bit of a taste break too and certainly like you say like changing up the making it um, changing up the variety so even if it's just different flavors of gels yeah. or if it's that you got some in your sports drink some in a gel but some in like real food like one I love what particularly in trainings is is some some cyclists love potatoes when you think it's easy. <laughs> Grab it out. <laughs> the best part of it. So often. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing you don't do, I think I've done this as a junior. I literally like baked the potatoes in the oven, rolled them up in alfoil, like straight out of the oven, and threw them in my pocket. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. So you get like 10 minutes down the road and the alfoil's at like 100 degrees <laughs> in the back of your pocket and you're ripping your jersey off. I was like, yeah, let, let them cool down yeah, before you do that. Yeah, I remember I woke up like, oh, shit. <laughs> Arguably, I was like 14 at the time. I'm like, I've got no food. So I'm like, quickly like baking these potatoes. And yeah, don't do that. Like, it's- I wasn't even thinking about it. <laughs> Cooking them, what is that? Some sicko eating a green potato. <laughs> like, what? No, I've never even heard of people eating uncooked potatoes yeah, before. They don't last as well as a gel either, so you do have to have them pretty, pretty close to the time of baking. But they, that is actually like, that has got me through a lot of races. Like, baked potato, a little bit of salt, yeah. olive oil goes down well. Like, it is a. Yeah, and, and just mixing it up. Like, you might go through that period for a while and then get sick of those, but you definitely don't want to arrive on race day with something you're sick of because it's not good nutrition no matter how good pl- you've planned it if you don't eat it. <laughs> if you're sick of it or you're feeling sick or you just can't stand the idea of another gel, it's it's not going to go in. So, yeah. And that's why I think even for race day, it's good to, yeah, not do the same thing. So I'm always a fan of starting with real foods for as long as you can kind of handle mm-hmm. until the race starts getting really hot towards the end and then you don't have time to chew down a real food and then flick to your gels. And you're normally looking forward or you choose. I always go choose and you're normally looking forward to them by that time yeah. anyway. You're like, oh, this is something a bit sweeter. This is good. This is. And with the, with the heat, Always, like if you know there's a hill right in the middle of the, or several of them, <laughs> then timing it can be quite good as well. So like you say, like use the real foods or the thing that you need to chew on a bit more. Have that when it's like the intensity is dropped or when it's not so hot first thing. Um, but if you're smashing yourself up a hill, there's, you're probably not going to manage it as well. Your, your gut's not really switched on as much. When yeah, but even even then intensity. it's like knowing the course, like especially mm. for our races, most of the hills aren't too long. So you eat before you get to the hill and then the descent after the hill. Like if you time it right, you should be able to avoid mm-hmm. like, if you if you only got a two minute main climb for a race, you don't want to be like, you don't want to be one of those people you see going backwards on the main climb trying to eat at the, yeah. the one point you don't want to eat at. Yeah. Yeah, I know I'm, a fan of eating real foods as well. I don't like buying gels and that sort of thing. But I have found that during races, most of our races are short enough that they're quite intense. And, you know, I'm taking out the longer. You know, Cunningham's probably one of the longer ones we do and Grafton Liberal's obviously a beast of itself. But most of them are like under two hours or, you know, at, at most two hours. I find that they're intense enough that I struggle to eat a lot of real food in them. You know, you might have that first one or two feeds I can handle real food, but then I've really got to switch to gels just because it seems to be on the whole time. That's just picking the downhills too. That helps a lot. Just if you do know the course, it sucks if you don't know the course, but if you do know the course, just just Mm. every time the road goes down for a long time, just start shoveling food. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's important to have all your tools there. So like, and and that's where gels and 
um, chews or blocks or sports drink um, comes in really handy because it's it's really dense carbohydrate and carbohydrates the main thing that you need so if it's volume or if it's just even carrying it you know they can they can play a really important role amongst that real food or or choosing which one depending on the day or the race mm. yeah what's your thoughts on stuff in the bottle too because i know that's something that i found improved my cycling a lot by just going almost very minimal carbs in the bottle mm-hmm. and just using it for hydration purposes so in terms of hydration sports drink um it's important to get it right for the day so if it's um particularly with sports drink some of them out there like particularly things like Powerade and stuff which I don't actually see many athletes using anymore most athletes know that it's probably not quite right Um, but even some of the other sports drinks they're made too strong and with that people can get gut upset even if they've got pretty good gut but the fact is that they're not it's not hydrating it's actually yeah like it some yeah. of them you need water to wash it down with afterwards. Like especially yeah. some of those big brands like SIS is another one. Their carbs are phenomenal and there's very little sodium actually in that. So mm. And so I guess like for a hot day it's particularly important and because you hydration is probably the key limiting factor to performance. Like um, carbs on other days could be the key limiting factor, but in hot days it's hydration you want to maximize. So um, I guess there is, like, say, there's three probably sort of drinks that you could have. You could have water, you could have just electrolytes, or you could have um, carbs with electrolytes. And what we know from hydration is that some carbohydrates, some electrolytes help absorb the water. But there is also the key thing, and same with the electrolytes, is that the electrolytes in the drink help absorb the water. So either of those are better on a hot day than plain old water. However, if you get really um, like furry mouth and that sort of thing too, it's really worthwhile considering am I gonna am I better to keep my carbs out of my bottle and I can control them and know how much I'm having from eating, um, or is it beneficial to have some in there because I can tolerate it and because in a bottle you could get 25 grams really easily and it's only part of your hydration um, and it's going to help you stay and remain hydrated too. Yeah. So once again, you can sort of formulate it as to what you need. On colder days, hydration's not as much of a limiting factor. So, you know, having liquid carbohydrates in a stronger amount, maybe in one of your bottles and then water in the other, just for mouth rinse and stuff, it's not going to be so much of a problem, and you can carry less. And do you do you recommend a sort of baseline? Let's say you're going to go a carb electrolyte water mm-hmm. mix. Do you have a baseline of what you think you know? This is the minimum that pretty much all athletes or or you know you should run mm. in this scenario, and then build from there. Like, obviously, it's going, I know it's going to be athlete dependent and, and somewhat weather dependent, but yeah. yeah, is there is there sort of a you know what this is a, a minimum baseline that you should be looking at? Yeah, definitely. So, um, particularly for Queensland or anything kind of warm, four percent solution of carbohydrates, which. Um, is about four grams of carbs per 100 mil. So if you're looking at a label or if you're making it yourself, um, then if you can figure out that if it's 4%, then that's good for hydration with some electrolytes in it. And generally, like if you've got that with some electrolytes, it's not too bad on the electrolytes um, perspective. Yeah. Okay. So when let's delve into a little bit. When you say electrolytes, mm-hmm. what are you talking about in that regard? 
Yeah, so predominantly sodium. Mm-hmm. That's the main one that you need to have in there, and all sports drinks will have sodium. Um, then the others like um, magnesium, potassium come in as well. The sort of less well studied just in terms of how much we actually need. Um, and the other thing with electrolytes, like as long as you've got some in your bottle, and if you're eating, there's electrolytes in all foods. So if you're eating, it's also going to give you some electrolytes and help you to absorb the fluid that you're drinking. Um, yeah, so as a general, it doesn't have to be super exact with the electrolytes. Um, it's just important there is some in there and predominantly sodium. Yeah. Mm. So I know I run my own mix and pretty much off the back of similar to what you mix up, Ben. So um, I just essentially run two types of carbohydrates mm-hmm. and, and sodium. Yeah. So... Anything I should add to that, you know, just from a performance perspective? No, nah, that's, that's, that's it. I'll fine. Stick with that. Yeah. Know. On the point of two carbohydrates, though, um, that's also something that's come out of this, like, stomach emptying, you know, the road of how many carbs can we actually manage or should we have. And there is a point where it's useful to have, like, a fructose in there, um, which is usually the second, glu- uh, second carbohydrate in addition to, like, glucose or sucrose, which is essentially just table sugar, um, because it's, it's absorbed differently. So it allows us to have more. Um, and tolerate it more. Yep. Yeah. All right. I must be on a winner then. So yeah, you didn't. <laughs> that's a good spot. <laughs> yeah. I find that's a that's a um, big thing. Is when it, like one thing I've always found, especially across people, is just um, how like how well the stomach, like you know, the label saying it, the drink has what you need, um, is so different to actually being able to you know having one bottle as a test run on a cafe ride, so different to having, you know, seven of them on a hot day. And even what the label says sometimes, they they are very misleading a lot of them. There's a lot of like sports drinks out there that have like almost no sodium in them. Yep. Like they say that they're there to hydrate you, but the sodium's almost there for taste. Mm. Like if you do actually start to, I, and I've gone through this and this why I make my own because I was trying to look for the optimal one. And there's very, there's actually very little on the market that has, a fair amount of sodium. Some of them just got like a sprinkle in it. Mm. I think you hit the nail on the head too. I know, you know, you say about seven bottles for the day or whatever the case is. I haven't, you know, raised it to the seven bottle extent. But by that third bottle or fourth bottle, you just want something that's water half the time. I'm like, oh, another bottle of mix. And you're like, yeah. I think your body is good at telling you though what you need. And if you feel like water, you're probably due for just some water. Maybe that you've gone a little bit too hard on. Mm. On that, like I think your body is is good, and that's why I generally go fifty fifty. Like I always have one bottle of water, one bottle of mix, and try and yeah, alternate. and just preference is really important because it means that like if you know what you're going to be able to tolerate and have, then that's guaranteed nutrition. So if you can plan around what you know that you'll feel like, the more and more you know yourself and what you'll need. Um, and wherever you can, like even making fluid more exciting, like freezing a bottle and having it slightly cold, um, yeah. if at all logistically possible, yeah. like that makes a huge difference if it's cold. Yeah, um, and there's that's something I've played around a lot, like because our club races are perfect. They're normally 2 p.m. So mm. they're perfect to experiment for some of the big races. And that, that does work well. Like, and, you know, I do normally start with one frozen bottle, one half frozen bottle. And things like that. So then, as the race goes on, they're slowly defro- and they're, you're like, oh, this is so good, and you start drinking more because it's cold, yeah. which then helps you go through. It's easy to push stuff. You're not even pushing it down because you're just 40 degrees and eat drinking the slushy. It's just like you, you empty your bottle in the first lap. Yeah, mm. 
And slushies, slushy keeps your core temperature down too because of like if it's ice when it's going in, your body is using its temperature and energy to cool it down. But in a way, that's good. You know, you're releasing heat yeah. energy. So it actually keeps your core temp cold as well, especially Eat. for those hot sessions. Even some of those protein buses have slushy machines on board now for that reason that they um. That's the dream. That's the dream. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you got a race to go in the slushies, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's because uh, I mean, what you're talking about is um, pretty much the regime that for, for, for me starts now leading into nationals in Ballarat because the chances of it being a 40 degree day um, in January in Ballarat's pretty, pretty high. Mm. Um, and last time I raced it, I went through it was a five hour race and I went to a bottle every 20 minutes for the whole thing. So it was, yeah, it was, I was knocking on the door of almost 16 bottles I went through and hmm. yeah, the difference when I got a warm one, I almost wanted to throw it at someone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> there is nothing worse than a 40 degree day and getting like a 30 degree bottle. It's just like, yeah. <laughs> or, or a 42 degree bottle that's been sitting in the back of the team car. <laughs> that sucks so much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like that's, I guess, you know, heat is definitely going to be the limiting factor for that sort of race. So like, even if, you know, you know that you're not going to be able to eat your, what you can usually do like on a cooler race. If you can hydrate well and remain hydrated and have reasonable nutrition, you're still going to perform really well compared to other athletes knowing that, you know, how much you have to keep up with that fluid. Yeah, so finding strategies for whatever works for that. And like, I mean, imagine around here we've got some ideas on how to train for that and how to mimic that. Um, but if we if we can get our body used to that sweating and like say for example when we're adapted we sweat less sodium so it's a more watery sweat and that's protective so that we don't lose as many electrolytes but our body also sweats more readily you notice that like at the beginning of summer you're like oh gosh you know hardly sweating here but by the end of summer you're just like pouring out when you train and that's also you know to keep you cool as much as possible um so getting adapted in many ways both nutrition and and mimicking those situations can help yeah yeah i did um well I've listened to a couple of podcasts and read a little bit the, from Precision Hydration. Uh, I think it's Andy Blow from over in the UK. Like, seems to be doing a heap of work in regard to sweat, sweat rates and sodium rates and mm-hmm. things like that. And he said a couple of interesting things, like further what, to what you were just saying about the body protecting sodium. But that the fitter you are, or the more adapt you are at training, to the quicker your body like recognizes what you're doing and and dump, starts dumping sweat earlier to try to mm. you know. So essentially, yeah, the, the fitter and you know, the more endurance-based you are, your body just goes, oh, I better sweat more, basically. And yeah. So, it's unfortunate uh, in social situations, yeah, but it's yeah, great yeah. for training. Yeah, yeah just, you just yeah. jog over to the cafe and your body goes, oh, we're off for a run, starts dumping some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, it does seem like there's a, a lot of interesting work there that 10 years ago probably wasn't happening at all. Yeah, and like when you're getting into more tailored individual um plans like we can you know you can do sweat rate testing and you can look at how salty a person's sweat is and therefore tailor the sports drink a bit more to that as well like for a salty sweater even if you're like even between say really well-trained athletes some will be more salty sweat than others so those people particularly need to have electrolytes and they're really important to have the right composition of um um, electrolytes in their drinks and and I guess fuel in their drink as well but for someone who's a less salty sweater then it's more that it might be more the fluids like just in general that yeah they can have 
And that's something that you mentioned, precision hydration do do like they do their electrolyte mix with different levels yep. of sodium. So you can, they, I think they do four levels off the top of my head. Well, that, I think they do four, but then they also cust- fully customize them as well. Yeah, so. if you want to pay for it, you can. But yeah. it is, that is a good product. Mm. So do you do sweat testing yourself? Like, I'm not set up for it, no. Um, in terms of like the – oh, sorry, in terms of the – like figuring out the sodium and doing that patches, mm. I'm not set up for it. But in terms of sweat rate testing, so how much you sweat in an hour and then forming a plan from that, yeah, I do that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Do you see oh, – I, I imagine you see a broad spectrum of people's sweat rates over – you know, over your, your clients or your mm. athletes, yeah? Yeah. And also it's so important to do it at the right time of year too. Yeah. <laughs> like I could do it in winter for a, a race that's in summer and then, yeah, it's just it's just not worth, you well, know, worthwhile. Well, look at something like, you know, heading down to Ballarat for, you know, for the Nationals. Like how far out do you need to start looking at that side of things? Let's say you're going to, you know, mm. you just said, well, there's no point in doing that in August. Yeah. You know, how far out would you need to look at that to, I suppose, tailor a hydration program or yep. to be able to tweak it and your body not, you know, to have the best opportunity to adapt or to benefit from that. Yeah. Um, quite a good length of time. If you're to look at like a reasonable amount of time, not not extremes, is about sort of three months. And so often, like I have plans because I encourage people to do it, to think three months out if you can because it allows you to go away and to tailor it and then come back. And we often have a few sessions in that time. Um, and in that time... Um, can do say an initial um, sweat rate test um, go away and trial some different drinks and figure out what's tasty what works you can change different brands find a uh, way there among usually alongside some nutrition plan as well planning in that time and then um, once we've got that plan it's really going and testing it and seeing what capacity we can get for say drinking per hour and eating per hour um, and it allows usually a race a in that time to trial it on um, so three months is a really good period of time um, as a starting point and particularly if you've got some knowledge in, or I guess use of nutrition hydration already um, if you're starting from scratch then depending on the event it could take a bit longer yeah so if you've got a bit of a bit of something you've been working with you know roughly what your body can handle or you know three months is enough time or a, a good amount of time to yeah. start putting something in place to to pick your own race and benefit from mm. it yeah, if it's like a like a tour or um, like I work with a whole bunch of different athletes like ultra trail runners who run for 24 hours straight or for adventure racing athletes who they're building up for, for races they do all week, you know, that takes longer because you really got to get down to what will work and you're almost catering for like three races in one. So um, the longer the race, the more planning is involved. But also you're probably thinking about that sort of stuff pretty early as well. Yeah. What sort of um, – I might – Change a little bit of tact if you don't, if everyone, unless anyone has got something they want to ask before I move off left field. No, go for it. <laughs> I was curious when, <laughs> topic close to my heart, talk about weight loss before you start moving into that. What, what level of, let's say an athlete wants to, you know, we spoke briefly before about mm-hmm. maintaining power, but, you know, um, fat reduction or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. What sort of time frame do you look at to make that a healthy, sustainable you know process yeah um 
probably pretty individual that one depending on their goals but like if it is a few kilos leading into like I guess optimizing maybe if you've you know enjoyed Christmas and New Year's a wee bit much and then you've got some races in summer still like March then three months is enough for for sort of altering and um, for maximizing body composition Um, but I guess if you are someone who's um, started with a higher body fat mass and you you're really wanting it to um to change your body quite a lot, then it could take longer. And it's certainly better to have more time. More time is better up your sleeve. Um, so it might be six months, it might be 12 months, depending where that person started from. Um, but over that period of time, it allows for for habit change and it allows for, um, you know, I guess um, uh, changes in motivations or events or there's slip ups along the way, um, and that's pretty normal in terms of behaviour change and, and adjusting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that behaviour change is the biggest one, isn't it? Just getting people to break those habits. Mm-hmm. You know, I suppose even in athletes, you know, I've always been fueling this way. I've always been hydrating this way, and you know, it might not be the greatest way you can improve on, but changing that habit, trending that preparation before mm. you even go out for that ride, and I imagine it's difficult. Mm, definitely yeah and I guess that's like um, I find athletes really motivated to work with most of the time so um, it's it's actually you know a really that's why I really enjoy working with athletes is that if they want something and they come to me and they say I want this and then of course that's part of a really big you know goal and they're very motivated so um, and I guess on that point as well like there can be a different in terms of like say goal weight for athletes might be a place that's really hard to stay. So a goal weight for... 4% body fat. <laughs> <laughs> so in the, being realistic with, you know, if there's a certain period of time that you're leading up to like an important nationals or um, Commonwealth Games or Olympics or, you know, big events that you've been training hard for, then it might not be realistic to stay at an athlete top level performance sort of weight. So often it's best to think, well, as long as I sit somewhere that I can use that three or six months in the lead up to get where I want to be, and then it's often a great idea to have a weight which is like a living weight. You know, you're still, of course, very healthy, comfortable where you're sitting, but it's more, you know, you can go somewhere and have a beer. You can enjoy um, your kid's birthday party and that sort of thing without getting too over-focused on on food and weight too. Do you often or do you have people come to you, whether or not they're athletes or not, who have, yeah, that goal, weight, but just coming to you and that, that, that initial goal is actually unrealistic in itself, like whether or not be, whether or not it's achievable or whether or not it's actually coming in, oh, I want to be X amount, you know, X have this weight, but it's actually going to be detrimental to their performance or you foresee that it's going to be detrimental to their performance. Do you get that? And if so, how do you manage that? Like how do you try to convince people that, you know, Mm. that's not necessary or it's unrealistic or whatever the case may be? Or maybe it's not aggressive enough, you know, maybe, Mm. hey, you know, Damo, maybe you shouldn't lose 10 kilos, you should have 15 kilos. (laughs) (laughs) More more the former, I think. Yeah, certainly. Um, and I guess that like a lot of the a lot of people, it's that they focus on a weight, and it's like, well, what is that in terms of performance? So that's stepping out. And often, um, you know, once we work together, and they see that, like being being sixty five kilos or being seventy five kilos, um, that might be a goal. But actually, what they want to achieve is, you know, getting to A grade or to to win you know certain events or and it's like well that number isn't going to achieve that it's it's might help being a lower body like body fat mass but 
it won't achieve the actual goal. So it's reminding that well, what is your actual goal, and then um, sometimes it might be beneficial to to go there. Um, and in other ways, it's I guess finding you know different markers along the way. So working with someone's coach or um, whether it's power or meeting certain times um, along the way, it's like okay, we're achieving this with nutrition. Um, it could be fueling more appropriately and feeling like they've got that spark. Um, and often when people get those results and they see those results, they think, all right, you know, this is this is really working for me. I don't necessarily have to focus on that 75 kilo or 65. Mm. Shift the focus from that, yeah. num- that number that they've come in with in their mind. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's something I find um, co- uh, with, with just coaching athletes is, is a common thing is it's really common for an athlete to have a – a number mm. that they just have stuck in their head and like quite often that number's not really based on any sort of realistic or reasoned place. It's just like, well, you know, 65 kilos is a nice round number so I'm just going to go for that um, is, is normally yeah. the approach. And The body doesn't work in five kilo increments. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and another thing which can kind of shift focus is that um, – body weight is actually not a very useful measure in athletes at all because if that person is training, they are likely building muscle. Even if they don't want to gain lots of muscle, like if they're a a hill climber or whatever, then their body is likely to shifting in composition. So one thing that's really important for athletes is to um, consider other measures as well. And often I'll do use skin folds as a measure of um, body fat mass, um, and how that changes in relation to body mass. Um, so that can be really useful because even if the person, say, comes in and they want to be, and they're currently 78, uh, their number might not change or it might even increase, but they may lose body fat mass in reducing skin folds over a period of time. Um, so that will also improve power to weight ratio. Mm, for yeah. sure. Mm. Yeah. No, I find um, no, that's a good point because that's that's approach I normally take is... Yeah, um, you know, u- using skin folds to track a trend rather. Um, but mm. um, yeah, I was just going to say that's something I find at least I found with my own weight is targeting any kind of number just doesn't seem to work. And it's a lot of like it's so much admin mm. and it doesn't translate into performance really well. Whereas like, for example, like I mentioned, I'm training up for nationals. Um, something I've found that works really well is actually just putting on a kilo like a couple months ago um knowing that november is basically going to be like eight nine hundred k weeks mm. you know almost through half in basically near to christmas and i find naturally i just fall into with the big k's mm. that that happy race weight mm. um, as long as i'm just fueling obviously like you need to hit the refueling and fueling during mm. sessions and that sort of thing but um yeah, when the, when the big weeks roll in, yeah. that, that race weight comes pretty naturally. And um, on that point, like I guess if if someone was sitting at their goal weight or their race weight, you know, three months out and they've got all those big Ks to do or they've got summer, you know, which is just dampened your appetite hugely and all, all other reasons as well that causes lo- weight loss. But there's a risk that that person might actually slip into like a low, we call it low energy availability state where – they're not. They don't have enough fuel, and they don't have enough reserves to, to kind of cope with those weeks. And not that the 
that person might not be able to meet their eight or nine hundred k a week, or they might not they might still meet reasonably. So their training goals, it's kind of like being on battery safe mode, and that your body can't function to a hundred percent. So it might be that you're and it could just be like in the first few weeks that you're knackered or that, and you think, well, I'm doing 800k a week, of course I'm going to be knackered. Um, but I guess eventually that can add up, and at some point it can, it means that certain things in your body will just power down. So ones that we don't necessarily notice is things like mood, um, immunity, and so we can be at greater risk of you know, coughs, colds, flus, that sort of thing. Um, particularly if you're, you know, if, if it's winter around and that sort of thing as well at that time. Um, and then also it can actually start to affect your hormone levels. And hormone levels are important for training adaptations like testosterone and that sort of thing, particularly for guys. Um, and for girls, you know, we do, um, it is good to track um, periods because that's a sign of but having 100% of your hormones. Um, without those hormones at full capacity it starts to affect things like bone health which is totally invisible at the time but over long periods of time of under fueling that's the risk um, particularly for you know endurance athletes and we're learning more and more about that and and I guess like how important it is to fuel properly for for big k's and stuff yeah. Yeah. I think I've definitely ended up in that situation mm. especially when I first came out of the juniors because I was in the same thing too like when I came out of the juniors I was like 50 kilos or something mm. so yeah i was losing weight but i was building muscle too so i ended up being into the 60s so put on 10 kilos but i've got down to like i think yeah i had no fat on me and just mm. but it's it is hard to tell especially when people go oh you climb so well because you're skinny you're lean and then you're putting on weight and you're like oh shit i'm putting on weight but it's just because my you are building muscle like i've got mm. 10 kilo of muscle extra as you can see he's really bulked up now <laughs> <laughs> Well, when I like when I got when I was in that, I was probably ten kilos lighter than I am now for the same height and yeah. that. Like it's, I was pretty lean. And junior athletes, they've got a huge energy expenditure for growth too, which is once again invisible. But like, and it's not just upwards. Even though upwards years, you know, there's a huge amount of growth in that time. It's like brain development and and body development mm. too, puberty and that sort of stuff. Um, so if, if there's junior athletes or parents out there, that's actually a huge whack of calories if we're just going to be blunt there for yeah. growth and for brain and stuff like that um and for guys that can be you know well into the 20s to 25 you know think of you know the guys you know around you and how late they they sort of keep changing in terms of chest and and body and stuff for girls it is younger um but it's just super important area to to sort of need to feel for too well, yeah. i read the other day that just your you know your brain alone consumes 20 20 or 25 percent of your daily caloric intake you know so that's a massive 30 percent for some of us you know <laughs> use it a bit more than others <laughs> yeah definitely. But it's, it's a huge amount of energy just in that alone like you touched on yet let alone when you talk about juniors and mm. you know and that extra demand well that's something i'm a massive advocate of is when like especially working with any juniors and definitely through under 19s and early under 23s like powder weight isn't something to be focusing on like unless no, definitely not like unless you're proper like overweight um that's you know that's sort of heading into a different um mm -hmm. category but especially when you're talking like young sort of elite athletes like 
I don't know many that are you look at and you're like, mate, you need to you need to drop ten kilo. Like, and their bodies change so much, especially like through those under seventeens, mm-hmm. under nineteen ranks. That it's it's not worth trying to mess with it. Like, well, it's yeah. obviously even psychologically though, it's a very important time in their lives and mm. you'd hate to be putting that pressure too on young athletes yeah. and then we've spoken before about body dysmorphia amongst even the pro peloton and um yeah. you, you know this is where it starts doesn't it if you if you're leaning on young people and saying you know maybe you need to be light or whatever that's that's not healthy mm. yeah that's why I'm, i've always been a big fan like at that age like there's enough pressure on you um and like you said you need to grow like there's no point being the leanest 16 year old and then putting no muscle on for the next four years mm. and having no power um when you're 20 like if, if you are thinking long-term development anyway um you're better off having the power when you're 20 and a few less results when you're 16 mm. even though I, I don't honestly think you know cutting weight when you're 16 actually translates to results no. um, so and I guess the best, like for parents or for young athletes, that actually, the best thing is is just choosing quality, like not limiting the quantity whatsoever, mm. because your quantity is actually huge. Like <laughs> for for sixteen year olds, guys, girls that are you know that are cycling with reasonable gusto, your your energy output is just huge. Between that and growth and school and thinking and puberty and all of that, so um, and you can't really go wrong if you're just putting in the right stuff and fueling appropriately um like, like ice in, cream like, like <laughs> ice cream <laughs> Look, oh, as a father of four children i'm, I'm listening to this jessica oh my god i'm gonna have to, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to do some overtime <laughs> no more milo for dinner <laughs> <laughs> they already eat me out of house and home <laughs> yeah. and when you got like an appetite that huge like it's i snacks just don't exist you know it should be meals and then more meals and then more meals <laughs> and um like i've had parents very concerned parents say are they eating too much like if there's something wrong have they got worms are they it's like nah they just need food and frequent as well not you know not leaving big gaps or um if they come back you know an hour after dinner and they're like i'm hungry again it's like, yeah you probably are hungry yeah. again here's your second dinner i think yeah. you hit the nail on the head though is not limiting what they eat, but just trying to make sure and encourage them to eat the right, mm-hmm. you know, whole foods. Like it's one thing to be in the fridge every five minutes eating carrots and apples and whatever, you knock yourself out. But if you're grabbing chocolates and that, that's mm. obviously not cool. Mm. And even if it's like extra meals, you know, it is leftovers that they mm. come in from afternoon tea. And um, yeah, it's, um, I guess when you, whenever you're hungry, if you're having nutrition, like something with, with nutrition, vitamins with carbohydrates with proteins it's more of the good stuff like more meals essentially yeah that's the way to go for high energy yeah needs Mm. so let's shift again and talk about your work with diabetes or Mm -hmm. diabetics Mm -hmm. which i mean we want to have we want to term it so you're from my understanding pretty well regarded in in that in that (laughs) sort of in in working with athletes with diabetes and people with diabetes so um maybe segues into endurance and how because mm. i know there is especially around type 1 diabetes i think there's a little bit of a stigma that endurance at you know sports may not be an option for want mm. of a better term but that's not the case you, know, you work with them so yeah yeah let's yeah let's have a look at that um so i've worked yeah i've worked with people with diabetes um all throughout my career it's kind of been like two parallels is that i worked in sports some of the time and worked with people with diabetes for the for the other half um and I guess like for people with diabetes, um, so type 1 diabetes is something that is, it's an autoimmune condition. So there's no 
choice. There's no, not that type 2 diabetes is necessarily a choice either, but type 1 diabetes is something that people can get anywhere from, like their six-month-olds that get diabetes type 1 or can actually come later and later now, like into the 50s and and that as well. Generally something that people get diagnosed with in um, adolescence or early adulthood, like 20s. And right from that point of diagnosis, um, their pancreas doesn't produce insulin so they are dependent on taking insulin either via injection or using an insulin pump for the rest of their life Um, and the best way to manage that from a nutrition perspective um, insulin is the primary thing that will absorb carbohydrates so learning about carbohydrates and counting them and then matching insulin is the way to manage from a day-to-day perspective Um, and so when it comes to an athlete with type 1 diabetes, they their first protocol is managing their blood glucose levels for that event or training. And the tendency is that blood glucose levels will drop when someone starts to exercise because the muscles use glucose. Um, and so they have to manage insulin. Um, either reducing it, their doses, or um, <clears throat> or not taking it, or taking it a different way to manage the the glucose and keep them steady. It's like kind of walking on a a balance beam. That if you go one way, it, they have a low blood glucose or a hypo, and that just you just have to stop. Or you go the other way, and their blood glucose goes really high, and they will feel thirsty, dehydrated, need to wee all the time, just nothing left. It's like that bonking feeling. So it's a real tightrope the whole time um, between carbs and insulin, managing glucose levels. Yeah. And we know, I know there's been, um, you know, well, semi-pro or, mm. or NRS teams that have basically been, you know, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Ben, you might not know this, that there have been actual, the whole team being diabetic, is that yeah. Team, team, team type two has type a two. has a team that's that's all, yeah. all diabetic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then there's um the Nova Nordisk team as well internationally. They um they race yeah very high levels too. Yeah. So is it is there a difference between or is it you know well, I'm sure there is a difference between managing say athletes who want to do something more so endurance related for themselves. Let's say adventure racing or triathlon where they can manage the. I suppose the exertion and how that energy is expended as opposed to like a bike race where sometimes you're at the whim of other people, you know, i.e. during this period you're going to be expending a lot more energy but then mm. it might be off where I suppose if you do a travel on you can say, well, this is my management plan of my energy expenditure, mm. how I'm going to manage that in a more linear yeah, fashion. Yeah, I guess it probably would be more predictable um, but like I guess you know, triathlon even could be the heat on the day could d- differ so much and heat tends to drop blood glucose levels more. So, um, yeah, I guess everyone with type 1 diabetes as a as a general state of um, play is that they need to have the tools to be able to manage it day to day. If they're an, an athlete or an elite athlete with type 1 diabetes, it really is um, like self self-management and that's the whole point of education with whoever it is health professionals sports dietitian that they're working with they need to have the tools on the day to be able to adjust um yeah all right yeah so a little bit of a case-by-case basis but that's something like in that regard that's something you work with them the athlete themselves fairly closely 
yeah, to yeah. help them manage that and give them the tools and the nutrition plan that they can adapt it and the knowledge that they can adapt it as they need to. Yeah, 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 really important. And then even like say for type 1 diabetes, if they if they do a different sport like strength-based strength based, or sprinting or resistance sort of training, often the blood glucose will go the other way and it'll go right up, <laughs> like right. skyrocket upwards. So um, that's a different form of plan as well. And on the day, like if you think of with, even within a bike race, um, you know, some the, you'll get those moments or even nerves that will send glucose levels up as well. So that's just very, very sensitive to what's happening. Um, yeah, so really is flexibility on the, on the day as well. Yeah. But it, essentially, in a nutshell, it can be managed get yourself a good nutritionist or definitely a, a, and work with them and and you can essentially perform at the highest level as well yeah and and a lot of people with type 1 diabetes won't exercise because it's and it is to their credit so difficult mm. to even start and starting is the hardest because the glucose levels are just so variable at the beginning i guess it's like new training is that the body's like whoa what is this <laughs> i'm not used to this at all um but certainly you know people with diabetes can like they can perform on the international stage as cyclists, as triathletes, um, as ultra endurance runners, as I've got a good friend back in New Zealand who won the most prestigious adventure race in the world um, a couple of years ago. So yeah, right. yeah, anything's possible. Yeah. So for those people that are just starting out, that's probably they're going to be more susceptible to variability. Mm. They really need to work with someone if they're Definitely. you know daunted or they don't have those tools work with someone like yourself and yeah yeah and i guess like really new starters getting um involved with your diabetes educator and diabetes dietitian um and if you're progressing into more um high level sport or even younger kids that are you know doing a lot of sport at school yeah getting someone um who's a sports dietitian as well can be really handy yeah who understands diabetes yeah so then what's the and this will be a little bit my ignorance i suppose i know there's obviously two types of diabetes yeah. so you know one's obviously not I suppose there's a perception with the second one that a lot of it's um, environmental base or mm. lifestyle. You hear the term lifestyle diabetes or whatever, yeah. you know, things like that. So what's the difference from your perspective working with the two? So the biggest difference is people with type 1 diabetes are insulin deficient. So their body doesn't produce any insulin. So they need insulin from the beginning and therefore it requires um, really careful nutrition planning within that. For people with type 2 diabetes, it's a insulin resistance. So it's more slow and they can be on various forms of medication um, and they can also be on insulin if their pancreas has worn out essentially. Um, so I guess working with people with type 2 diabetes in general and, and also people with type 2 diabetes are doing sport, um, it would really depend on what sort of stage they are within. Um, and... The overall goal of both is to just keep glucose levels as as normal as possible within a normal range. Um, so whatever that requires, yeah. Do you work with anybody or do you work with individuals? Probably, well, this could be totally incorrect, this statement, but <laughs> probably not so much athletes who are at risk of developing type 2 diabetes. But do you work with anyone who, like in that at-risk category, and is there things that people can implement into their usual nutrition programs mm -hmm. to be i suppose in, you know preventative or to increase their you know likelihood of not going down that path yeah it's actually a really um good point to talk about because like athletes 
particularly people who have had huge training volumes either in their younger years or maybe even through like early adulthood and then they give up sport or is that like especially if they've been really active their whole life they their habits of eating are really often like large volumes and that is a like 40 or 30 years of eating large volumes and eating frequently and been able to eat whatever you want in a sense sometimes too um and then all of a sudden sometimes stopping that so especially in like like team sports like any form of football um or even um endurance sports as well there can be I guess a high risk there in that period afterwards if it's not adapted to um and and certainly any power sports where a person has got high muscle mass and then don't use it you lose it sort of thing but it can then sort of change into body fat so I think athletes are are quite at risk if they do stop and they just completely you know um I guess turn off that that active lifestyle so with anything like that or with any athletes that um I guess have got a higher body fat mass or have type 2 diabetes in the family too because it's not just I guess lifestyle but um it's about eating well most of the time kind of like an 80 20 rule you know like um your main meals 80% protein 20% carbs <laughs> 80% stuff with nutrition right okay right. 20 yeah. percent you enjoy life <laughs> yeah that's a good sort of rule of thumb and making sure that what goes in you know is it's premium unleaded it's not like messy diesel um yep. most of the time um and then adapting and our hunger and our habits do not adapt quickly so if you do have like an injury or if you if you um do decide to retire or give up or whatever happens in life, maybe work gets super busy or yeah, something happens where you have to stop suddenly, making sure that we adapt it but purposefully because our habits, we're used to serving up the same size meal and um, and also our hunger might not sort of correlate. So that's a good rule of thumb for anyone who's mm. yeah maybe at risk. I know I had quite a few years, like I did triathlon when I was uh, younger, like, at any sort of super level, but did it did a little bit, doubled in it, got a passion for riding and endurance sports then. But when I moved to Brisbane, I went away and I and went and lifted weights for a lot, you know, multiple years. And with that, you eat a massive quantity of, of food. And then I sort of transitioned back to doing nothing for a little bit, and then back into cycling, and shutting off from eating, you know, four hundred dollars worth of food a week yourself to a normal person quantity takes you right a heap of adaption mm. and. Uh, yeah, I felt like I was starving to death <laughs> because, you know, you weren't eating so much all the time like, and you were probably still eating more than what you should, so. Yeah, and you don't know, like if you've grown up in a really active family, like you don't know any difference. It really takes a lot of, um, I guess, self-awareness to adapt to those sort of situations, mm. yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's definitely heading towards the direction of my degree and like the, like once you develop a habit, and like they, humans are just habitual creatures. Like once that started, that's so hard to break. Yeah, my job is not just nutrition. In yeah, fact, I can most imagine. of the time, if I'm doing a reasonable job, it's it's behaviour change and and motivation and yeah, working out how that person's gonna even just time management that sort of thing too like knowing nutrition is definitely not the way to manage nutrition it's, well, it's 80, 80 20 80 percent nutrition 20 percent psychology oh, probably the other way around <laughs> i think <laughs> well yeah it's so true yeah. like, like it's kind of like what you said before um you know having a, a textbook perfect nutrition plan is quite meaningless if you don't eat it and um 
Yeah, and that goes like with everything nutrition, right? Like, and it, that, that that also applies. Um, it's essentially part of the reason why I got into the psychology degree is, um, you know, like having the the right training program is meaningless if they're not getting out the door and doing the training in the first place. And um, yeah, the same applies to nutrition. Mm. Yeah, and I think like in terms of nutrition and other aspects that can affect psychology too, like um, there, I find yeah some things quite interesting. And that's like a lot of people, and it might come from I guess um, the whole training program thing as well, and that it is a program. Um, and some people think that they can, and some people do well with nutrition planning. So like, so eight weeks, this is what you eat. Um, and I find that quite tricky and there's probably only, I think only maybe 5% of the population that would actually do well with that because food is so, um, there's so many other aspects to food, not just nutrition, like there's the social aspect and mm. there's the enjoyment and there's, yeah. you know, that varies so much like hunger one day to the next. So um, the variability and the actual um, ability to self-manage food is so important for the long term. Um a lot of people do come and say, can I have a plan? And I try and make it quite a loose guide, if anything, if that's the way that person wants to manage it um, because it, a, a nutrition plan to the letter, yeah, it's, it's um, I guess it goes against nutrition in a lot of ways, what it is. That's one of the, the massive things that I struggle with when it's, and I've never had a nutrition plan, So, mm. but you know, if you're looking at meal preps and planning and stuff, is that social aspect of food. Like I enjoy having the family around, cooking pizzas or whatever. It's not just about, you know, what the new, you know, nutritional value is or whatever. There's that whole, what you said, that whole other dynamic that food brings to your life, mm. um, which, you know, is a slippery slope too, you know. Come around and load up, <laughs> have some <Yeah>. wine. And <laughs> oh, and it's the hardest thing. Like if you're, if you're trying to make habitual change in nutrition, it's, it's all about like moderation and slow change. Mm. And it's not like quitting smoking where you just stop you it's all it's not all or nothing and that's a really hard thing for people to change and it's got to be like sustainable like following yeah. a meal plan for the rest mm. of your life are you really going to do that like are you really going to map out every single meal mm. forever it's like mm. probably not so it's probably mm. not the best to try mm. and start it because you're going to fail maybe if you got that short-term goal like you said before well you know here's you you're three months out, here's mm. your target event, yeah. this is the range that you're going to be in. Mm. You know that in six months' time you're not going to still be trying to meal prep, you know, seven days a week or whatever the case may be. So you're right, that's yeah. sustainability. Even, even then you need a plan on the back end. Like you can't just stop it and go back to eating ice cream like I do for breakfast, lunch and dinner. <laughs> <laughs> sure you can. Sure you can. Yeah. There's not one person listening to that who agrees with you there. <laughs> And it is um, like something I'd like to talk about too along the back of like what we said about low energy availability and that concentration on food is that it can be a slippery slope the other way and that you can start to overthink food and weight. And, and it can and, become unhealthy too. Like yes. a lot of, especially a lot of athletes I think do have an unhealthy relationship with food in general. Mm. Like, um, yeah, and mm. it's very, uh, I guess particularly where the audience is probably mostly cycling in a cycling world because it's, um, it's often talked about, and like you said before, is that even, like you certainly don't want to talk about um, weight and that sort of thing amongst junior athletes, but even in um, all cycling circles, you hear weight thrown up every now and then, or, you know, you stop at the coffee shop and it's like who's eating the croissant and who mm. isn't. Um, and it is, uh, I guess, a... Um, like people wouldn't say I have an eating disorder, but disordered eating in that poor relationship with food is a spectrum. 
and it can start with, you know, maybe I might calorie count a little bit or I might get a meal plan or I might, you know, go to my gym and do an eight-week challenge um, or I might want to aim for this event and it can spiral into, you know, not eating with the family or having meal prep and nothing else, mm-hmm. not going out with friends. And, and I guess when it becomes your your world, like if it's what you're thinking about all the time is calories and weight and what am I going to eat next and what can't I eat or I shouldn't do that and feeling the guilt and those feelings afterwards. And that's kind of a red flag to say I need to step out of this a wee bit because it, it seems to be dominating my world, whereas it shouldn't be. It should be a world that I'm enjoying. Yeah. I think too you touched on there, like you said, the the you know, the cafe and the those sort of things. And we've spoken about this with you know, people talking about power outputs and that before and I I I personally think that, you know, weight falls into the category, this this same category that a lot of the people who are talking about it have no real need to ever talk about it. Like it's you know, you're talking about something that you don't need to worry about, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if you're riding around with a group of mates and enjoying cycling and even doing local races and that don't worry about weight. Like as long as you're not overweight and unhealthy, you don't need to worry about that crap. You know, like you just need to have a good time and have fun and, you know, it doesn't matter if you're two or three kilos heavier than, you know, somebody else because you're not doing it for a living. You're not doing it mm. because, you know, you have to maintain a contract or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I look at it. You know, same, you know, we spoke about people rolling around power meters. 95% of people rolling around power meters don't even need them. You know, like mm-hmm. you just go, go and ride and have a great time and enjoy mm-hmm. it. It's just... um. It's that to, to be crude, that, that dick swinging at the mm. at the cafe that you know that comes with it, and weight can be a little bit the same as as that. I mm. think you know. Yeah, I think it's definitely when when things like weight do come up in the conversation. I think it's pretty important to always kind of acknowledge that there is a bit more nuance to the conversation. Like yes. you know, me being seventy kilo versus someone else being seventy kilo. Like that, that's such an arbitrary, meaningless comparison mm. in yeah. so many ways, and. Um, yeah, like there's, I think it it just needs to be a bit more open about the fact that um, there is more to the picture than, mm. than boiling it down to real simple things. And like, yeah, weight's such an easy one where you can just jump on the scale and I've got my tangible number and, you know, this number's good and this number equals bad and that, but it's there's, there's there is more to it. Mm. Um, there's yeah. a reason your degree didn't take a week to do, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, certainly didn't take a week. <laughs> Try six years. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Know, I don't have the commitment for that. My, my ADHD would never let me. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think then that um, like the sub elite um, recreational athlete, that's where the danger is in a lot of different areas. Um, it could be in supplement taking without. Um, I guess knowing which ones are safe, it could be, yeah, trying to lose weight without um, rhyme or reason or knowledge of the or benefit, or it could be overtraining, or it could be um, <clears throat> those are the athletes that get that overhydrate on water in a in a marathon and get hyponatremia. So it's actually that middle ground that's actually kind of dangerous in in some ways for for athletes. Yeah, mm, yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and they don't have the same support as the higher ranks too. Uh, yeah, and I think one well, thing like internet forums. That's pretty well, good. Well, oh, I was yeah, going to say, unfortunately, I think some of the probably... information <laughs> gathering from un- unhealthy resources too. You know, like yeah, watching right. what the pros are doing, watching what those other people, and applying it to ourselves, which we've spoken about plenty of times. And but a lot of times it's minimal translation. It's, yeah, it's not understanding to why the pros are doing something as well. It's yeah. it's easy to see and go, oh, this pro done this. But it's like, but mm. why did they do that? What was because they're making a living off that. And what, 
but what were the other factors that they didn't tell you that yeah. took them to that place? Like most supplements, I sort of talk about them as like sprinkles on the cake. You know, there's the cake that makes the big difference. <laughs> and then the sprinkles are just like the last 2% of, so any, a lot of supplements are just the top, like the creme de la creme of the, once you've got your nutrition, once you've done your training, once you've done your recovery, once you've done this, you've got your hydration. Then if you take a little supplement, that might get you the last 1%. But um, yeah, you see... You see that one percent being filtered through yeah. any level of. It's athlete. not going to make fifty percent difference to your <laughs> yeah. to your performance. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just we we are probably getting time to near around this out, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on on an approach that that I take because um, it's because I mean, in my experience, there's sort of two broad categories of of people who especially would be listening to this and like the kind of person who's you know is relatively lean and a fairly elite racer or um you know really pushing that that upper limit of their ability i always say if you're serious like see a nutritionist because like um it's just so individual and personal and like when you're starting to knock on the door of being too too lean and and that sort of thing it is complex enough to warrant seeing at least getting some sort of advice from a nutritionist and that sort of thing but then the other person is just um no the the not elite a rider who's who's generally tending towards the direction of they're just having a healthy lifestyle and wanting to lose weight Mm -hmm. um and and my advice generally to to those people is um especially like if if you're doing a reasonable amount of training and i'm going to take someone i coach just because i think it's a a good example um he sort of came to me maybe 12 months ago and was you know was is overweight and wanted to lose um Mm -hmm. a fair bit of weight and was really concerned about, you know, what should I be eating? Should I be doing this? Should I be counting calories and that sort of thing? And my general sort of advice is like, if you're doing the training of, you know, 10 plus hours a week, as long as you're hitting, like you said, the the, the quality of the food and, mm. and sort of not entirely neglect quantity, like you know, mm. have 15 bowls of pasta. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although the, yeah. all you that, can eat, bad? the Thursday night all you can eat pasta around the corner from here is... It's hard not to do 15 <laughs> bowls of past of it. Um, yeah, like as long as you're not going into the absurd direction, you know, and, and having that well-rounded meals with your bit of protein, mm. a bit of carbs and veggies and that sort of thing, and you are ticking the training. Um, if you actually watch your weight long-term, like mm. I had that, because I, I said this is a perfect example because I had that conversation with him and he, I, th- I very much got the vibe. He didn't like my response. So I was saying like, mate, if you just eat healthy and... Mm don't smash three meals in one sitting, like you'll be okay. He didn't really like that response, but I've followed him up since and we sort of have been tracking his weight long-term. And in that 12 months, he's, I checked the other day, it was almost 10 kilo he's lost mm. just by sticking to the training and eating healthy. Um, would you add anything else to, to that advice? Yeah, so I guess like talking about those two groups, like the, the I guess, more recreational athlete, um, it is... Like the role of a dietitian or nutrition in that is it could be just a touch base with someone or it could be that in the, that year they, they see someone a couple of times um, really for that guidance. And, you know, I think your your strategy um, is, is spot on is that it's the quality and, and eating. And everyone, most people know how to eat reasonably healthy. Um, is that extremes are not necessary? And 
I'll agree with you. That's the same response I get if I try and talk someone out of a meal plan sometimes, <laughs> if they're dead set on getting, you know, everything they want. Um, and that is because people, they just want so much support with it if they're really in the dark. Um, but I would have taken a, a moderate approach as well. Um, and if people start from, like, for not much at all and then they increase training, one thing that can happen is that their appetite increases. So if they go in with it with a notion of, I might need to eat more or I might, but as long as I'm fueling appropriately, like the right stuff that it's got nutrition in it, like veggies and um, high fiber carbohydrates and proteins, and I'm having meals and snacks that I've planned, doesn't have to be meal planning or anything fancy, but that's generally the right direction to go um, and not going long periods without food to then overeat later. Um, and when... I guess that person maybe doesn't adapt nutrition to what they're doing or if they continue, you know, sometimes that starting cycling or a training program can be a real kick to, I'm going to make some other habits changes as well. Um, But if that person maybe fills the gap with hunger with, with other things like think, oh, I can, I can eat all the ice cream I like now or I can, you know, go out for this or I'm hungry, I'm, I'm not prepared for it and therefore at work they're starving in the afternoons, that's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> so it is adapting nutrition to what they're doing too. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head, mate. Go sound nutrition advice. Nice here work. Go. <laughs> I'm, all I'm hearing from you is that I'm perfect. That's, uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> There's obviously a communication breakdown here, isn't there? <laughs> Message sent versus what was received. Fast <laughs> <Plus laughs> difference. Oh, well, well, I don't know. We're a fair way in, so we'll probably uh, look at wrapping it up. I, I do have one very, very serious final question. Mm. Who are the most precious athletes to work with? <laughs> the most precious? <laughs> oh, well, do I dare say cyclist? <laughs> That'd be top five, I would say. But um, the most precious or, well... Um, I have worked with I've worked with dancers and that can be quite tricky um, but they're, they're very wide ranging too so yeah right. but I don't know I, do I dare say cyclists yeah. I'll, I'll keep them at second just in right, case right. <laughs> so, cyclists only second to dancers so. <laughs> uh, oh it's been really good really great conversation um, did you want to Pillow, anything else before we looked at wrapping it up? Is no, there anything thanks else you very much. On? And this is, yeah, this is great. And I guess if there's anything else that you want to, like any particular topics, um, you know, let these guys know and I'll be happy to come back. If, yeah. Yeah. And um, where can people find you? Where could people reach out and I suppose follow you on socials or where are you actually working? What's your best way to get in contact? Yeah. So my um, work is Ascent Sports Nutrition. Um, I work um, in person on the Gold Coast, but I've got the ability to see um, athletes from, from all over. So if, if you're up in Brisbane or further north or even down south, um, we can catch up over Zoom and um, anything basically other than skin folds and body composition measures are possible with that. Um, I've got um, packages where you can catch up with me for that sort of three-month intensive period, which is generally you know enough to learn something and to be able to take it forward um, or to prepare for that main event. So, yeah, um, to look out, I've got a website, um, Instagram and Facebook. Yep, yep, so Ascent Sport Nutrition website as well. Yep. Instagram and Facebook. And Facebook, yep. There you mm-hmm. go. Uh, easy way to get in contact, so... Yeah, really appreciate you coming along today. It's been really great, informative, um, and I've been really enjoyed it. So, yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming on. Awesome.
Thank you.